So you likely don't know this, but uh, every Sunday morning uh, when you come and we enter into this time uh, where I get to share from God's Word, um, you are in the presence of a TV personality. Now, you didn't know that. I know you didn't know that um, because you didn't see that TV program that I'm talking about. But believe it or not, you're going to have to take my word for it. I'm indeed a TV personality. Now, this happened about Goodness, I'm not trying to recollect how many years it was. 17 years ago, I guess, when I was uh, 18 years old, uh, I was on a, a pretty, well, 17, so 18 years ago. I was 17 years old. Uh, I was on a pretty good football team in high school, and we were good enough to attract the attention uh, of the uh, local news station in Abilene. And they came out to one of our pep rallies late in the year, uh, hung out for the pep rally. Uh, I had the opportunity, my coach, for some reason, uh, me and another guy, one of us, uh, we had team captains had been at that school since we were a little bitty and gone through the whole K through 12 in that one little six-man high school, uh, and we had the opportunity to speak with the press. Uh, and I can still remember how proud I was. And I used that in like the, the sinful term of the word, right? I had the, all sorts of pride, big-headedness uh, over being on TV and being seen by all of these people, you know, the the hundred plus people that probably saw that that evening on television and being super proud of myself and and as a 17 year old young man would be who's already pretty full of himself because he's on a football team just to be honest just to be honest um, and and in a successful one uh, became even more full of myself and even more pat on the back kind of style uh, when I got to be on TV and you forget in that moment and I have a, a little bit of understanding for the athlete today that becomes a little too full of themselves because I can't imagine being an 18, 19-year-old kid and attracting national attention and how that must bring like a huge sense of pride and burden that comes with that. And that's what happens to our college athletes today. So I have, again, a little like minuscule understanding of how easy it would be to dive into pride, to forget that you're a part of a team and instead to begin to focus on self begin to focus on individual accomplishments. It's kind of what we do in our society. Uh, one of the things that make us American is the, the love of individualism, the love of, 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 of every person mattering, right? That, that we're not just a, a whole conglomeration, but we're a group of, of people, and each person matters. And that's a good thing, but we take it sometimes to extreme measures when we do this kind of Focusing on the individual in sports is one of the many areas that we do it. I want to juxtapose that against an image uh, that many of you are going to remember, even if you weren't uh, old enough to specifically remember the events surrounding the image. You will probably remember the image. Most of you will remember it precisely. Though, Brad, if you could throw that picture on the screen. There we go. Like I said, many of you probably remember this. This was 1989, Ron Bill. 1989 at Tiananmen Square in China. Uh, this was the day after there was a violent protest in the, in the square. The protesters themselves weren't violent, but the government coming to, uh, to put them down were. Uh, if you look at the reports of how many people lost their lives, they vary wildly, which is you know, understandable with the communist regime at the time. Uh, some say in the hundreds, some say in the thousands. Again, the number varies wildly as to how many protesters were killed the day before. But in response to that, the government decided to roll down in these big tanks through the square to show their power, to show their force. And the guy standing in front of that tank, again, one of the 
the unforgettable images of the 20th century, especially in relation to communism. This gentleman standing in front of the tank is simply known as Tank Man. You want to know more about him? Google Tank Man. Uh, and you will see articles on him. And, and while there are some, there was a journalist back then that thought they knew who it was, nobody really ever figured out precisely who this individual was. And so that's why he's known simply by the name of Tank Man. And I think it's perfect, considering what he was standing up against, that we don't know who he was. Because we couldn't focus on the individual. We couldn't like pick him apart and pick all the little different problems that he might have had in his life. That's the problem anytime there's a symbolic figure that has a name that you're able to attack that figure uh, and then bring it down. When, when uh, pastors and churches fall and they make incredible mistakes, some on the outside will say, see what that person did? That, that, that causes the whole cause or the whole program or the whole church to be into question. But because like this guy, you never know it, he just stands symbolically for a cause and represents something larger than himself, something larger than one idea, something even larger than one country or one movement. The idea of one person being able to stand in the face of tyranny, in the face of communism and say, I'm not going to move. You're going to have to do something about it. Many of you probably remember seeing this video and how the tank tried to get around him and he stepped over and he climbed up on the top. I mean, this was a courageous individual who was not willing to back down. And symbolically, he speaks not just, again, to his people, but to all people about standing up against the face or in the face and against the force of tyranny and, 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 and inordinate power in our world today. Because he's not known, he's better able to represent that cause. But again, in our world, we focus on the individual. And if that were today, don't you believe somebody would be tasked, not somebody, thousands of people would be tasked at hunting this guy down, figuring out his story, trying to present all of the things he's done wrong in his life, especially those who were opposed to his movement, so that they might bring the cause down. Because we love to focus on the individual. Like I said, we do it in sports. Ever since like the Michael Jordan days in the 90s when uh, athletes started really becoming famous for not just playing a sport but also endorsing certain products, just the, the individualism within athletics has taken leaps and bounds since then where it has become less about the team and more about which players you support. Which again, if it's just for entertainment, that's one thing. But if we take that into society, we see, problem, we see problems with that outlook, with that worldview. You see the same thing in entertainment. How many of you would go see a movie just because the synopsis of the movie is great if you didn't know anybody in the movie? But you might think the movie, if you look at like the synopsis, the summary of it, isn't that great, but you know an actor or an actress in it, so you're going to go see that because of the heightened sense of the importance of the individual within our society. Do we do that in the church, though? Making sure that we get notoriety. Making sure that our specific church gets notoriety. Making sure that even within our churches that, that we stick out as, as a leader or as someone devoted to the cause more so than those normal people. Do we have that same heightened sense of individuality? Again, there is something good in knowing that every single person is important, but we heighten that in our culture sometimes to wanting to become famous. We call it 15 minutes of fame in the American way, right? 
wanting to be on TV when you're a kid or an adult or wanting to make sure that you get famous, that you get yours, that people know your name and in the setting of the church know how much Bible you know, how much Jesus you love and for it to be about us. And maybe we don't even do it consciously sometimes. Maybe it's running under the surface, but I certainly sense that that's there. And so as we think about worship today, continuing in our series on worship, Audience of One, as we continue to think about giving ourselves to God fully and worshiping him with everything that we are without reservation, as we continue along that, let us make sure, let us speak to our hearts this morning to make sure that what we call worship is not about us, but it's about the one whom we are worshiping. Let us anonymously Make Jesus famous. Let us look at worship in that sense. Not making ourselves, not making our movement, not making our church famous, but making Jesus himself famous. We're going to look at scripture, two different individuals, two women who worshiped Jesus or who served Jesus anonymously. And we're going to look at them as ways that we can also serve Jesus with that same sense of no desire for recognition but all desire for focus to be placed on him. But before we dive into Luke chapter seven, let's pray together. Father, once again, we thank you for being here this morning, for your presence being among us and within us. And God, we thank you for the chance to, that we've had to worship together as a body to sing praises, to give offering, both of ourselves and of our money, of our voices, as a small way to thank you for what you have done, to give praise back to you for who you are. God, I pray now that as we read your scripture, God, that you would speak to us through your spirit. God, that you would remove all distraction from us. And God, that you would help us to fully, solely focus on what you have for us this morning. God, in such a way that we might leave here transformed by your word, transformed by your presence. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Again, we're going to start in Luke chapter seven, verses 36 through 47. One of the Pharisees asked him, being Jesus, to eat with him, And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he wouldn't know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. 
Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the moment that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. A wonderful story with a lot going on in the text and between and in the context as well. But what do we know about this woman who, go, who, who stands at the center of the story? We know that she was a sinner. Uh, we know that not only she was a sinner, but likely a prostitute the way that Luke speaks about her. And her sins were many. However, we know that she also loved Jesus. She desperately wanted to get near him. We can see this in the way that she approaches him. You can imagine, again, hearing that Jesus is at this Pharisee's house, at Simon's house, somewhere close by, where she has the opportunity to get into his presence, that she goes there immediately. And she likely wants to be even closer to him than she is. She brought anointing oil with her, and anointing oil is usually placed on someone's head and not on someone's feet. So she gets as close as she can get, which is Jesus's feet. If you're trying to get this in your mind's eye, you can get this woman crawling, essentially, along probably a dirt floor in someone's house, crawling, trying to get close to Jesus as he is reclining at the table. And again, reclining at the table then meant something different than it does now, right? They weren't sitting in chairs, probably. The, the tables were on the ground, and Jesus is just kind of hanging out. I know a lot of times we get, like, we, we misplace that idea because we see uh, is it Da Vinci's painting of the Lord's Supper with everyone sitting nicely as if they're in American chairs or in Western chairs, I should say. But really, they're kind of just hanging out on the ground uh, and, and, and relaxing. And this woman gets as close, again, as she can to Jesus, reaching out to touch his feet. The oil and its alabaster jar, its vessel, were likely incredibly expensive. Some scholars reading this story and other ones like it say that it was probably about a year's worth of money, a year's worth of wages. And she is weeping, the story tells us. Don't really know why. Perhaps it's over the depth of her sin. Jesus said she is indeed a sinner and she has sinned deeply. Or maybe it's over the joy of being forgiven of that sin and knowing that that's present within the person of Jesus Christ. Or maybe it is simply being overwhelmed by being in the presence of this Jesus that she had heard about. This Jesus that she had heard stories of how he had been open to other people like her and no other teacher had before. All of the, the miracles that he had performed, the teachings that he had delivered, and she had the opportunity to be in his presence. Her, this sinner, this woman of the city, as Luke would put it, had the opportunity to be in the presence of Jesus that she had heard about. Perhaps that's why she's weeping. And she is so excited to be in the presence of Jesus that just like David that we talked about last week, she forgets about convention. She forgets about what's appropriate and she lets her hair down. A woman was not supposed to do that in public, especially in the presence of men who were not her husband. And so she takes her hair down as she worships Jesus. I know she's not singing a song or she's not saying a prayer, but you better believe this is worship. As she approaches Jesus, she takes the oil, puts it on his feet, and with her hair, 
hair and with her tears, she anoints and cleans Jesus's feet. Now, when we read this story, we usually see it as her doing all of this on purpose. And maybe that is the correct way to read it. But I also wonder if perhaps, again, the woman coming with the oil, wanting to anoint Jesus, maybe her intention was to anoint his head because that's what you're supposed to do with anointing oil, not the feet. But she got as close as she could get, and just being that close, she is moved to tears to be in the presence of Jesus, and the tears that she is crying fall on his feet. And so again, just without thinking, but just reacting in the presence of Jesus, she lets her hair down so that she can wash them. Always taking that step toward Jesus, grateful for all that he has done. She's forgiven. We know that about her. Jesus speaks that truth. But ultimately, we don't know her identity. Some scholars make guesses, saying that this is the same woman that uh, we see in the Gospel of John, which is Mary in that story. But uh, although there's some similar circumstances, it's a different setting. So we don't know for sure if it's the same exact story. It's probably not, actually. Luke purposefully leaves this woman's identity anonymous as he is telling the story. And I think we should take some stock in the fact that he does that and leave, it anon- leave her anonymous as well. We don't know who she is. But we know who the Pharisee is. His name is Simon. And we know that there's differences between him and this woman whom we do not know. We know that she humbled herself while exalting Jesus. That she had sinned deeply, so she loved deeply. She understood the depth of her sin. Don't read this as Jesus saying, well, she sinned more than you have, Simon, so she has more to be grateful for. No, the, 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 the truth behind that is all sin is sin. All sin makes us fall short of God's glory. Yes, we know that from scripture. But what Jesus is saying to Simon is not that he, his sin is less offensive than hers, but rather she has realized the offense of her sin more deeply than Simon has. And so she is forgiven after the recognition of sin. Healthy recognition of sin fuels worship. When we recognize our fallenness, what Jesus has done for us, when we, when we think about, not like move into a place of paralyzed guilt, but when we reflect over our own sinfulness and the depth of our sin, it should move us to a state of, thank you, Jesus, for forgiving my unworthy soul. And gratefulness for the fact that he did indeed do that. Meditating over, reflecting over our sin moves us into a state of true worship. But Simon, again, whose identity we are told, we do get to know this guy's name. His interest seems to be Simon. It seems as if, perhaps, reading between the lines, that he invited Jesus over, not for Jesus, but for himself. Imagine that. A Pharisee, a religious person, wanting some sort of like personal praise. I had the teacher over today. Uh, I had this guy that everybody's talking about. He's at my house. Surely there was nothing in that for Simon, right? Surely he was just doing that for, for altruistic reasons. Surely he was just doing that to be nice. Right to be, to be grateful to Jesus. No, there definitely seems to be something else going on. So you can imagine the pride that would come with having this figure, Jesus himself. Now, the Pharisees believe something different about Jesus than was actually the truth, most of them at least. So he's not bringing Jesus over because he actually believes that he's God, most likely. But he's bringing Jesus over because he is a controversial figure. And he wants to be where 
the party's at. He wants to be where the drama and the intrigue is at, right? I once heard a preacher talk about uh, the different kind of fruit that you see in a church. Uh, He was talking, it was a sermon over spiritual fruit, like you have your fruit producers, you have your fruit judgers, uh, you know, you have your your fruit loops. That was one of the ones that he said. But he also said that you have your fruit flies, and those are the kind that just come around when there's a stink, right? That those that exist within the church as well. Now, that's that's an oh my kind of statement, right? Or oh me kind of statement, whatever you want to say instead of amen, right? Because some Sometimes, if we're being honest, all of us like a little drama and intrigue, and we might stick our nose in places that doesn't belong or, or be a little bit more active when things are going on that are dramatic or things that are controversial. So maybe this is what Simon wants to do is to have the impact or have the influence of that drama in his own household. We see this desire, again, running underneath the surface when Jesus points out all of the differences between him and the woman. While he was not required to show Jesus the same type of love that the woman did, it was evidence of Simon's self-interest. Again, as Simon said, she, you, like, she's here kissing my feet and you didn't offer me a single kiss, which back then was a simple greeting that was shared between people on a cheek. And, and he didn't even do that. And, and, and she's here kissing my feet. She didn't bother to, you didn't bother Simon to clean my feet, but she is doing it with her tears and her hair. She is, she is actually having to give something to clean my feet. You didn't bother to anoint my head with oil, which again would have been something that you did to a guest of honor. You didn't bother to do that, Simon, but she, not only is she anointing me, she's anointing my feet with oil. If recognition of sin moves us to worship, pride moves us the other direction. Pride is worship's worst enemy because we put ourselves on the throne and not Jesus. Perhaps that was Simon's issue. And again, we get to know Simon's name. I'm sure he's proud of that. We get to know who this individual is while the other one fades into anonymity. Everybody knew Simon's name because that's the house that Jesus went to. But this woman, all we knew her as is a a woman of the city. All we knew her as is a sinner. Yet we also know her through the lens of Luke's gospel as a worshiper, as a forgiven child of Jesus Christ, who shows us an example of what worship looks like, worshiping in anonymity, worshiping without recognition, but doing so because she could not keep away from Jesus. She heard that he was near and had to be near him. She had to give him something. This is what worship is. We hear what Jesus has done for us and we have to give something back. It's not enough, it's never enough, but we have to give something back because of what he has done for us and we don't care if anybody knows our name, if anybody knows what church we go to, we just care that they know that this Jesus is worth worshiping. Amen? We see a similar story in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. Once again, Matthew, this time, following Jesus around and telling a story about a woman giving anonymously. Matthew, excuse me, I said Matthew, I meant Mark, the gospel writer Mark. Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and the poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, 
But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let me paint the picture for you to describe this treasury that Mark speaks about in verse 41. It was also known as the court of the women. It was as far as women could go then. And there were 13 boxes within this court that they would come and people would put their offering in. It seems convenient that the furthest the women could go in was the place that they could give money. But that's the way things worked out then. And so they they had these 13 boxes and there were trumpet-shaped openings to each of the 13 boxes. So you can imagine with these metal boxes with these big metal openings that it made a lot of money if you dropped some coinage in it. So you can... You can hear the clang of coins, and there was pride taken basically in how much noise you could make. Imagine taking a $100 bill to the bank and saying, hey, could you give me all of this in pennies? I want to take it to the church to make a big point about how big of a giver I am. The commotion that that would cause, the attention that it would get. So you have people in, you have people in, of course you have people doing this, undoubtedly dropping change into these trumpet-shaped openings that clattering on the way down and people saying, wow, there's a gift. You can imagine Jesus sitting with his disciples. It said they're just kind of people watching. That's kind of the idea that you get. Just kind of watching people give. You can imagine from the disciples' perspective, the ones who make the most noise, they must have the most faith. That's how reasoning worked then. The more they had to give, the more blessings that Jesus had given them. So obviously, these people had the most faith. These people were worshiping God the most holy. And then you see this one woman, again, in my mind's eye, covered. Now, again, in this culture, she would have been. Sneaking, not sneaking, it's the wrong wording, but that's the only thing I could think of. But walking, trying to be as inconspicuous as possible. Going up to the the closest box nearest to the door that she walked through, making a beeline, hoping that nobody notices. Clink, clink. That's it. Just, just two coins. Not only that, the two smallest coins in circulation at the time. In our English translations, it says that they were about a penny. Scholars really don't even know if they were quite that much. And that's all she had to give. And she laid it all down. Here's something I didn't think about this passage until I was reading through it again this week. Yes, the woman gave all that she had, but do you notice that she had two coins to give? Jesus could have made the same point about somebody giving all if she had just given one coin. But I want to draw some emphasis to that because she could have given one coin and it had been half of everything that she had. Yet, she decided to go ahead and give both. She could have just given 50%, and that would have been amazing. That still would have been like percentage-wise more than anybody else in the room probably. But instead, she gives both coins. Everything that she has, she puts in the offering plate, so to speak. Still, worship is meaningful not because of the one who gives worship, but because of the one to whom worship is given It is the one to whom she was giving that money that makes it the sum that it was. The sum that was all that she had to give. More than anybody else, Jesus said. Giving large sums of money. It was not the amount that was put into the box. It was the one whom they were putting into the box for. Who made it greater. Again, the woman, just like the one in Luke 7, comes to Jesus or comes to God to give him offering with humility, giving all of herself, 
She knew she could not give enough to earn God's favor, so she simply gives all that she has and leaves the rest up to him. We hope and can assume likely that she found joy in giving herself away. Jesus did not rob her of that joy. He did not go to her and say, no, this is all you have, don't give it. No, he recognized that it was an act of worship and he allowed her to keep that gift. And this woman, just like the one in Luke 7, was anonymous. We don't know her identity. We don't know her name. She numbered among the poor widows, the unimportant, the left alone, the ones on the fringe. She wouldn't have any buildings with a, with a the sign over, over it saying that she donated to make this happen. She wouldn't have any memorials in her name. Her act of worship is famous, but she is not. Just like the woman in Luke 7. We're never going to know who those people actually were, just like the tank man. They go down in history representing something larger than themselves, and they do so without ever being known. All that we know them as is worshipers. It's people who loved their Lord enough to give of themselves even all that they had. Anonymously make Jesus famous. Who are you making famous in what you call worship, in the ways that you worship, both corporately and individually? Who are you making famous? Who is the center of your worship, yourself, some cause or institution, the name of a particular church, or is it the person of Jesus Christ? You know, in a very real sense, but I also mean this mainly metaphorically, As we worship, all that people should see of us is the backs of our heads, pointing towards Jesus, pointing towards him. Let the whole world see you, but let the whole world behold you, beholding the goodness of Christ. Let you be one among millions, billions of people in a throng of worshiping believers pointing towards Jesus and seeing glory be to God and glory alone be to God. That's what I want to be a part of in my best moments. Now, in my not-so-best moments, I want to turn around and I want to let people see who I am so that I am famous, so that they can know how much I love Jesus. Stop trying to convince the world you love Jesus and just get busy making sure Jesus knows that you love Jesus, making sure he knows that you're willing to give yourself to him completely. May we stop thinking it's about us, and I mean we, me, you. May we stop thinking it's ever about us, this thing that we call worship. If it is about us, it ceases to be worship, and it becomes an action of pride and self-absorption. But if we are going to call it worship, then may we point it solely towards the person of Jesus Christ. Again, metaphorically speaking, and even literally sometimes, may the world simply see the backs of our heads. Just like, again, that picture I can have of that woman. Even as I picture it in my head, I can't even see her face because I picture her on the ground, groveling, reaching out for Jesus' feet, having her hair down, covering her face, weeping, and just hearing the sobs of worship and giving her to Jesus, and I see the other woman with her face covered slowly, inconspicuously, walking into the place of worship and giving all that she had and quickly leaving, and the only person that noticed her is Jesus, and that's exactly the way that it should be. That's exactly what we should be going for. 
anonymously make Jesus famous. Echo John the Baptist from the Gospel of John when he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. May it be said of us as Christians in the 21st century, I don't know who those people are, but man, they love Jesus. May it be said of us that the group of people in this planet today known as the church of Jesus Christ, not this church, not that church, not those who listen to this preacher or those who prescribe to this worship band or this worship style or this particular whatever kind of taste that you have within the church itself. May it be known of us as the body of Christ present on the world in 2018 that maybe they don't know who us, each of us are individually, but they know that we love Jesus Christ. May that be what we are known for, that we love Jesus and we love each other. And I think that's enough. Amen? Just like those two women understood, understood, there is no amount we can give to Jesus that makes up for what he gave to us. But what we can give is everything that we have, not for the glory of people, but solely for the glory of God. When you worship, who are you making famous? May we anonymously make Jesus famous through the way that we worship him in our world today. During our time of invitation, I want that question to echo in your mind. Who are you, who are we making famous in our worship? Do business with God over that question. Pray where you're at. The altar is open. If you would like to pray there, you can always pray with me either during the invitation or after the service. I'll be down here at the front. But allow God to speak to you. Allow the Holy Spirit to move upon you and be open to whatever he has to say. Be open to whatever he lays on your heart in response to that question or anything else that he might want to speak to you this morning. Let's stand together. I'm gonna pray. Bill and Lynn are going to lead us in a song of invitation. And as they do that, you move in whatever way God is telling you to. Father, again, we thank you for all the things that you've done for us. And we know that we could never give enough back to earn that. But God, we give all that we have. Not to earn, not to make up ground but just because we love you. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.